a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. O is for Obi-Wan Kenobi. All rebel fighters met at fleet headquarters to plan their attack. Princess Leia addressed them. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars. Another chapter is here. Welcome to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am here with my co-host for this episode. He is straight from the pit droid repair shop right into your hearts. It's Devor. Happy to be here for the first time. Inaugural guest. Oh, man. This is your first time on Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah. Well, long time listener, first time follower, <laughs> first time caller. That's it. First time caller. I screwed that up. Well, yeah, you know what? You're, we're going to have to have you on again so you get another chance at that. But um, yep. no, if you, some listeners might be listening for the first time because, of course, we are releasing this episode on Star Wars Podcast Day, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the first Star Wars podcast being released. So. Um, if you are new to the show, welcome. If you have been here for a while, also welcome to you. We're excited to talk tonight, and we're actually not talking about a new book tonight. Uh, we are talking about a 25-year-old book uh, in The Phantom Menace. We're going to talk about The Phantom Menace novelization, celebrating Star Wars Podcast Day, and also 25 years of uh, of Star Wars The Phantom Menace. So, Devor, now that now that I realized this is your first time on, don't burn the sacred text. We got to get the audience to know you a little bit here, because we, you know, not everybody listens to every show on the network. We have a lot of people that do, and we love them all. We love everybody that's here. But for those who maybe don't know you uh, a little bit, introduce yourself and tell us specifically about your journey with Star Wars books. Sure. So yeah, so I am DeVore, as has already been introduced. So I am one of the three co-hosts over on the main show. I also do some other Star Wars podcasting. I co-host a Star Wars podcast called Space Swifties with my wife, the one and only Meg Dowell. And as far as my, my history with Star Wars books goes, so I would say my first exposure with Star Wars books wasn't really the in-universe fictional stories as much as it was the reference books. So I remember as a kid getting the the visual dictionaries and the incredible cross-sections for the original trilogy and then for the prequel movies. So I, I remember that being a big part of... Uh, like my early exposure to Star Wars books. I do remember reading one now Legends book. I think it was one of the uh, Jedi Quest books, which is the, um, the what would that be, middle grade or YA books that are about Anakin and Obi-Wan between yeah, yeah, Phantom Menace grade. and Attack of the Clones. I remember getting that in seventh grade. At, I, don't, I don't know if it was one of those like scholastic book fairs or something like that. Do you but, remember, was it the first one in the series? Do you remember, like... No, it was the second one. Oh, man. I, I found it in my basement, like, a few weeks back. So it wasn't even the first one. It was number two. Oh, man. That's hilarious. 
Yeah, so I had that kind of early engagement with Star Wars books, but then in terms of regularly reading them, and especially in terms of the new canon, it was really kind of around, I would say, end of 2019, 2020, that I, I really started reading it, and that was in part because I started listening to a lot more Star Wars podcasts, and like they were talking about the books and saying like, oh, like if you want to get into Star Wars books, read you know X, Y, and Z, and they were kind of naming different titles, and so I decided, well, I'm going to check them out, and so ever since then, I have been yeah a pretty regular Star Wars book reader of both new canon. Have been trying, particularly in the last year or two, to you know, get a little bit more into legends, particularly now with the essential legends collection, read those books and kind of, you know, deepen my knowledge of that. And then also this year, and this is sort of the sort of the context for why I'm on this episode of this conversation is I, I've made a resolution of sorts to read through all of the Star Wars movie novelizations. So I have a lot of questions for you there. So first and foremost just because, you know, I want to spark the controversy. Legends or New Canon, which one do you like better? I mean, I don't know that I have a big enough sample size of Legends books to really compare it to, but I would say of the Legends books that I've read relative to the Canon books that I have read, I, I, I would say I'm a New Canon guy. Yeah, you are. That's what I'm talking about. It's all about the New Canon, man. It's so good. Like, they're... I haven't read a ton of Legends books, but I would say at least 50% of them that I've read, I've gone, this isn't great. Uh, you, have your, <laughs> you have your standouts. You have things like Plagueis. You have your Kenobis. You even have some people don't mention like Mall Lockdown is really good. Um, but most of them, I'm just like, oh, this is, the 90s were a rough time for some people. Um, but... The new canon just, like, I, I think maybe three books I haven't at least enjoyed. So I'm very much a proponent of, of the new canon. So hopefully I'm not uh, alienating anybody listening. We can obviously have that discussion. It's what Clashing Sabres is all about, is having those discussions of which things we like more. And so my next question for you then is, what is your favorite Star Wars book? Uh, this is a admittedly kind of a vanilla answer by Gago with Lost Stars. I mean, it's one of the yeah, it's it's one of the earliest in terms of like you know when I really started getting into the new canon, it was maybe like the fourth one that I read, but it's just it left such an impression, and it's just it's such a amazing book and there have been a you know there have been a lot of great books particularly in recent years there have some that have you know been biting at the heels of lost stars that are really up there but i don't know that anyone has yet come across the top of it yeah there's it's crazy because there's been so many good books lately that i feel like lost stars is starting to take more of a back seat just because it's older and it's like but when yeah. you really line them up there's very few that you can put in the tier of Lost Stars. Like I think, uh, I think you've had more lately that you could. You know, you've got Brotherhood, yeah. uh, Shadow of the Sith. Um, God, what else? Uh, Light of the Jedi has to be up there just for what it yeah. did to start yes. things off. So you've got a bunch of stuff, uh, you know, there that could take that mantle. But it might be a safe answer, but it doesn't mean it's a wrong answer in saying Lost Stars. Um, 
wouldn't be my personal favorite for those of you who might be new here is uh, Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade, um, which I am rereading. And if you're wondering if it's just as good the second time, it is. Um, so that is that's a lot of fun. Uh, it, it just I, I kind of like and I've mentioned this before that we're at this place where we're not getting a Star Wars book every other week. Because I feel yeah. like I have time to go back and revisit things. And I've got Escape from Valo arrived yesterday that I'll pick up uh, reading that one once uh, once we get done, once I get done with my reread of uh, Inquisitor. But so overall, enjoying your journey into Star Wars books. So what led you to this endeavor of, of reading or listening to all of the uh, novelizations of the films? So I've I had already read a couple going into this year. I guess by couple I mean two, which which is the Revenge of the Sith novelization and the Rise of Skywalker. And I don't know. I I think there was a couple of things. One is that a bunch of them are in audiobook form on Libby, and I'm primarily an audiobook person, and so I would see them there. I'm like, oh, okay, well there they are. I should check them out. And I, I I was also just interested in, like, I wanted to see, like, some of those differences between the story that you get on screen versus in the novel, the stuff that they add in. And, you know, given that they have more time, you know, a kind of longer runway to tell the story versus the, you know, two hours and change that you have for the screen story. Like, what are they able to to add in and kind of flesh out? So that's been an interesting story. I mean, so far this year, I mean, aside from Phantom Menace, I have done, have, have I only done two others? Yeah, I did Solo and just wrapped up Attack of the Clones. Yeah, so you're you're not trying to to read them in order. You're just doing it however you can get a hold of them. Is the idea? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've hit a bunch of the the great ones like Solo. Uh, I remember Lindsay and I having a discussion about whether it was better than the movie itself. Like that's the level that that is. Uh, I think it is. <laughs> the same can be said for Rise of Skywalker. That book. Some of the things it's able to do, and it, it was able to do things that you couldn't ask them the movie to do in terms of yeah. having Luke and Leia communicate and stuff like that, um, that really sent it over the top. So that's an understandable one. Revenge of the Sith, uh, I mean, is possibly the greatest piece of written fiction ever created. Um, it's the prose in it is just, it's absolutely insane. So you've hit, you've hit a bunch of the, the good ones. I'll be interested to see, um, Let's see. I'm thinking there's really only one that I've read that I didn't like, and that was Force Awakens. So I'll be interested to see uh, what your reaction is to that. And then the rest of them, I, I think the, the original trilogy are very much a product of their time um, when novelizations were really just, you know, stage to, to page and not so much adding extra stuff in. And... Um, and then books like The Last Jedi uh, that are, are really good but don't do a ton to change um, what happens in the movie like you'd get with, with some of the things in Solo and some of the things in Rise of Skywalker and even some of the things we're going to talk about today in, in The Phantom Menace. So um, before we get into that, though, what we like to do on this show, we like to rate the, the books before we get into the conversation. 
have our conversation and then re-rate them after and see whether our opinions have influenced each other uh, in any way, shape, or form. So we like to do this on a scale of one to five. So uh, we'll, we'll do trade federation ships on this one. So <laughs> one out of five trade federation ships, how did you rate the Phantom Menace novelization? So for the Phantom Menace novelization, I'm going to go right down the middle and say three stars. Okay. Yeah, three out of five for Star Wars books, that's generally what I go for in terms of the middle-of-the-road ones, where it's like, it didn't, you know, dazzle me as a book or anything, but also I didn't, like, it's not a book that I had a ton of things that I disliked or something, or, rub, or like, the writing style rubbed me the wrong way or anything like that. So if, if, not, if neither of those are the case, then usually I just say, it's a three. It's like, it, it was, you know, that's the, it was fine score for me. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with three out of five. Also, um, I do think the reading the book is better than listening to the book. I will get into this, but I had some serious problems with um, the <laughs> the audiobook version of this story that really just took me out of it. Um, but you know, when we we came up with this concept, you were already you know getting close to done. And I didn't have time to read. Uh, reread the whole novel, but I have read it before and I, I know that I've enjoyed it. So a solid three out of five is definitely where where I'm sitting at as well. And kind of the same reason. Uh, it it does what it's supposed to do. Um, I, I don't think that George put a lot of time into considering what the the novelization had in it, you know, as long as it didn't contradict anything that was happening on screen. I think his energies were were elsewhere, and so they had a little bit more of a playground. But also, this was this is an interesting one because it is a change in what Star Wars novelizations are. You know, like you look at, I've got the three original trilogy uh, books sitting on my shelf right now, and the three of them together are almost like this. <laughs> the Phantom Menace is almost the same size as three of those combined. So you're you're adding a lot of stuff on and that's one of the things that stood out to me right from the get-go that I wanted to to talk to you about which is starting the book with Anakin pod, pod racing uh not at the boon to eve but at the race that's referenced in the movie you know where Sebulba flashed his uh uh gears or whatever they were and made Anakin crash and all of that how did you feel about starting the story with Anakin rather than with what we get in the movie. Yeah, I was, well, there's a couple reactions that I had about that and about some of the additional things that are in there that are not in the movie. One is that did very much surprise me because I was expecting to go and like, oh, we would get Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan flying in to the Federation and all that. And so when we didn't get that and instead we're on Tatooine and we get the, as, as you mentioned, the story that is alluded to in the movie of the race that he had before the boon to Eve was, you know, it, it, it was surprising and like in a good way in terms of like, I really liked that we were able to actually see that. And I think what's interesting with, with that as well as some of the other additional Anakin seeds that are added in, and we can probably, we'll probably like touch on some of those other ones as well is that like, we were having a conversation back when we were recording, like prior to recording our, our Phantom Menace episode for the main show. We, you know, one of the things that we were talking about in the chat is uh, we were talking about how like 
there's a real question with Phantom Menace because the movie is such an ensemble movie of like who is the main character of the Phantom Menace. And then there's like there's many, I think arguments that you can make for different characters and the arguments would be different degrees of valid. You could say that, well, Padme is the main character. Qui-Gon is the main character. You can even say like Palpatine is the main character. And I feel like the author of the novelization, particularly like the way he starts and other things they added adds in, I think is very much in the camp of Anakin is the main character of the Phantom Menace. I think that's very much the thrust that you get from this novelization. Yeah, I I think that starting the story that way definitely sets that up. I, I'm not as big of a fan of starting it um, with the pod race necessarily. Um, I, I I'm thinking about things like the the Last Jedi. Uh, I won't say specifically what it is, but it starts with a Luke scene that's not an action scene. It's kind of just an emotional scene setting situation. Um, Attack of the Clones, if I remember correctly, begins with Shmi. Um, yeah. And, and so I like just kind of those calmer introductions if you're going to add something in that go, here's, you know, we're going to kind of ease you into how we're going to change the story. And this was very, I mean, it's a pod race. It's very fast paced and everything. And I feel like uh, it was a little unsettling to begin the book that way. I would have preferred, you know, I like the idea of, of starting with Anakin, but I would have preferred maybe starting with him in Watto's shop or something of that nature. Right. But as I was listening to it, you know, I, I was thinking about all these scenes that were added with Anakin because you have, uh, the, you know, the pod race, you have the scene with the spacer, you have the scene with the Tuscan, um, you have more with him and Jira at the fruit shop. Um, so you get a lot more context for Anakin. And I want to get specifically into those scenes in a little bit because I like them to a varying degree. But just overall, do you feel like, one, this does a better job characterizing Anakin overall? And two, do you think it does a better job specifically of showing uh, the empathetic, caring side of him than the movie does? I think... It, it, to the latter, I think you. I think a, a lot of those scenes do definitely convey that, where you see a lot of his compassion in there. I mean, I don't know whether I say it does it better than the movie. I'm not sure because I do think that the movie does go out of its way to give us moments to illustrate that, wh- whether it is him, you know, welcoming these strangers into him and his mom's home so they're not out there in the sandstorm, his willingness to, you know, get into the boon to Eve in order to help them get the parts. I think that the movie has those moments where you kind of see his his selflessness and his empathy and his willingness to help others. I think these scenes more kind of additionally reinforce that. That's kind of what I got to, too, as I started to question it. It's like, did any of these scenes do anything that weren't wasn't already in the movie? And the only thing that I could think of really was when we get to the the battle of Naboo and he's making a promise that he's going to protect Padme and Qui-Gon and, and everything. And he, I liked the self-awareness there of him realizing like, it's ridiculous that I, I'm nine years old and I think that, but also like, I know it's right, and you know he doesn't recognize that it's the force in him, but we as the audience do. Uh, so 
that's the only thing where I really went, wow, that's that's a big uh, shift in kind of how I view Anakin in that particular scene. But the rest was just more of a reinforcing of of things. And to, I mean, like I said, to varying degrees of success, I think about the the scene with the spacer to start off with, you know, where him and uh, Kitster, you know, got some extra screen time in there too, which is awesome. Um, they they meet this this old spacer and he talks to them about flying the galaxy and seeing all the things flying for the Republic and how he knows, you know, Anakin is going to be able to do that because he can already see his great piloting skills. It just, it was, it, it gave me the ick, if I'm being honest. Like, it just, it was very cringe and way too on the nose that I was just yeah. like, why, why did we do this? Like, it doesn't add anything and it, one thing I always love about Star Wars, you know, it's quote unquote made for 12 year olds, but it never talks down to them. You know, it never yeah. expects them to not be able to handle these heavy concepts. And this felt like it was talking down to the audience of we've got to let you know that Anakin's going to do all these things. We've got to allude to all of these things. And it just felt unnatural, which was weird because at the same time, he the the author Terry Brooks executed on the same idea of conveying what Anakin is going to do later through the dream scenes and having him dream of himself as what we will eventually see as uh, you know the Jedi Knight and the Clone Wars and all of that and then even Padme leading the battle those things we don't get in the movie but it feels more organic than this scene with a spacer also really weird that this probably 50 something 60 something year old guys like asking two nine-year-olds if they want to go get drinks um but yeah that's a whole nother conversation so like where did you come down on that additional scene yeah i don't think you sir to your point like i i don't think that it added much i also to your last point i was waiting for some kind of shooter drop with this guy i was like is yeah. he like some shady guy is he gonna try to do something and that never happened so i was like okay never mind i guess yeah I, I i think of the additional anakin scenes that you get i think maybe this one does the least for him and for the overall story yeah, it just it it didn't really add anything and if if anything like I said it took away from time that we could have spent elsewhere. Um, you know, because while we do have more space than we have in the movie, you know, the book comes out to about eight and a half to 9 hours on audiobook. I think it, it ranges I think it's like 340 something pages long. Um, the the actual novelization, you do still have you know, limits on how long the book is going to be. You know, there's a page count, there's a word count that these authors have to meet. And so you do have to consider like, okay, we we used this scene, what was left on the cutting room floor? Because something had to be. And, and would it have been more of uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan? Would it have been an additional scene with Shmi? Like, I would have loved to have an additional scene with her after Anakin left you know, and not have that be the final moment. So I just, I didn't appreciate that one. I did really like the, the scene with the Tuscan. Um, Me too. I I thought that that's the thing that made me go, does this show his empathy and caring better than 
the movie does. And I, you know, like I said, I kind of came down where you did, where everything that needs to be said is said in the movie, but it's nice to have this additional thing in here that wouldn't have fit well in the movie because it would have slowed everything down too much and would have um, added a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't necessarily need for the narrative of the two-hour film. But the intuition that he has, the maturity that he has, all of those great qualities that Qui-Gon season him are encompassed in this scene and his the the belief that we'll see uh him have in himself later on both in the book and just in the saga overall is really brought to light in this particular scene and i like that it's with the tuscans knowing what eventually he's going to do um to the tuscans i think it shows just how far he had fallen already by the time we get to attack of the clones. Yeah. Agreed. And especially that's, that's particularly one of the reasons why I really like that scene is because of that juxtaposition with attack of the clones. And I mean, it works so well that I almost had a point where I was thinking like, did like, I mean, did, did George like tell Terry Brooks something about like there's going to be something with Tuscans later? And because yes, again, like, I think it, so. It, 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 the, the connection is too good. It, it, it's it's so, it's so coincidental and it is so illustrative of like him as this good, pure kid and then him later going down the path of the dark side that I'm like, okay, maybe George didn't have the whole script for Attack of the Clones done, but maybe he just alluded to, like, I'm going to have this moment with the Tuscans, that something's going to happen, and then he took that and ran with it and put a scene in this book. So I, I keep thinking back to... Uh, it in I think it's in the episode one documentary, the beginning that was on the DVD, uh, and George hears uh, Duel of the Fates and um, talks to John Williams. He goes, you don't know why, but this is going to work really well for the third film. And, of course, oh. he's talking about, you know, leading into the duel between Anakin and Obi-Wan. And, of course, there's musical connections between Duel of the Fates and Battle of the Heroes and everything like that. And also you get, you know, some Duel of the Fates in, in Attack of the Clones when he kills the Tuscans. So George already had a solid outline for the three movies. And I think that you're 100% spot on that he probably let Terry Brooks in on some things that other people didn't weren't privy to because you have the the thing with the Tuscan, right? You have um, the dreams that that was something yeah. you you can when you look at the dreams that Anakin has, you can pinpoint each one and go, oh, this is him during the Clone Wars. This is him at the Battle of whatever. Um, this is him in Revenge of the Sith. I think there's one where he's marching towards the Jedi Temple or something like that. And um, so the, there was definitely some cohesion there, which uh, like also makes it weirder that, you know, some of the scenes that got left in were left in like that spacer scene. I'm not trying to harp on it, but it's just there, there are some moments in this book where I go, yeah, George definitely had a hand in making sure that, you know, this was going to help set up things for readers to give them more going into future films, you know, to reward the reader for taking the time to read the novelization. And then there's just some stuff that would just got stuck in there. And it's like, did somebody just like skip this 
part of the book before they published it. Um, so it was a, it was an interesting uh, dichotomy that happened there. But I definitely think going back to the original point that George had a hand in in giving some clues to Terry Brooks uh, to set things up for for future films and this being you know 30 years basically before we get to a new hope uh it's not like it it would be very weird i should say i shouldn't say it couldn't happen but it would be very weird if terry brooks just accidentally figured all of this stuff out and it's just coincidence like there's just too much like it's different when you look at attack of the clones and you there's a lot more uh, with Shmi and Owen and Baru. And it's like, okay, you want to set that up because this is their first appearance in there and they're going to be very important in, um, you know, the the next saga or the next trilogy. But all of this stuff to just, it just, yeah, with not knowing what two and three were going to be just doesn't seem to make sense to me. So I definitely think there was some of that. Yeah, agreed. So... What else, I mean, those are some scenes that stood out to me. What else stood out to you as far as um, any additional scenes or any other kind of revelation or ideas that stuck out to you as you were reading? I think there were a couple things that jumped out at me. One of them actually goes back to the opening scene that we talked about with the pod race. And this is just like, it's, it's like a dumb little thing to be like struck by. But it was something I never really thought of because like, when we meet Anakin, one of the things that we are told is remarkable about him is that he's the only human who can pod race. And I think in all of these 25 years, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, like he's the only human who can do it. And that's related to the fact that he has these Jedi powers. And I never thought of it any deeper than that. And maybe we're not really supposed to. But I think in that first pod race scene, they have the, he has this whole bit where he talks about how like – it's much better suited to non-humans because like aliens will have multiple arms to like use all the different controls or like maybe they'll have longer necks to see or they can bend around and things like that. And it was like one of those moments like, oh, like that's why he's the only human who can do it. (laughs) I never thought about that. Yeah, I I remember that my first time reading too. Yeah, like I never thought about like, oh, why is this sport so conducive to non-humans? And then having it explained to me, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's kind of neat. It is, and it recontextualizes things a little bit because I think if you just watch the movie, I think that that is the point. And not that the book negates it, but I think it just adds on that extra detail to it. Yeah. Um, there were a couple other things that jumped out. Um, one is actually related to to Anakin, and it, it, it's, a, it's a little moment that <laughs> I, I don't think makes him look particularly well. We've talked about these other moments that kind of like help his character, but it is, I, I had the cringe moment, which is the scene in the shop when he first meets Padme, and there's the line where he says, I'm going to marry you one day. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, thank God that didn't make it into the script of the movie. It, oh, that would have been bad. I think it was in. I think they filmed it. Oh, they did. I I think so. I, I know that it was in at least the original script. Okay. Um, I I have a I have a feeling that I heard somewhere that they they filmed it, but it was definitely yeah that definitely was not a Terry Brooks edition. That was okay in the script when they got the. You know, because they obviously haven't seen the movie itself. They're working purely off of, yeah. of the script and talking with George. 
So yes, that was a thing that was on there. Um, oh goodness! And yes, that the older I get, the the harder that scene becomes overall. Um, with just the the sixteen year old, nine year old, or however long, large the age difference is, but adding that on just is. Again, it's like one of those things of it, it's too on the nose for what yeah. we're going to get. Like you, you need to leave the audience wanting more. And I think that especially in Anakin and Padme's relationship, you need to leave them wanting more because that's part of the point of their relationship is right. you can see, again, not when they're like 9 and 16, but as they get older and the age gap doesn't become as, as big of a deal, you can start to see like versions of them where they could be good together but they're not able to do that because of their, their past traumas and their current situations. And that's part of what makes it tragic is you have these two people that clearly care for each other, but circumstance and everything kind of changes their ability to, to live that out. And when you started out with like, oh, it was all predestined because Anakin could yeah. sense through the force that he was supposed to, it just becomes too... It, it becomes too contrived and, and too fairy tale uh, almost. You know, right. it's like, oh, well, I, I you know, S- Cinderella's slipper fit, so I guess I'm supposed to marry you kind of thing. Or, yeah. you know, the kiss of true love. It's just a little too spot on for what they were trying to do, especially having this story end tragically. You don't want it to, to start that way. That definitely wouldn't have worked. Right. Uh, another moment that actually jumped out at me is, you know, we were just talking about the Tuscan scene and about, you know, George having this outline out there and, you know, maybe feeding some things to Terry Brooks that he could see it in the novelization. I think it is also interesting on the reverse end where you can see how, like, with some of the novelizations and stuff that they are artifacts of their time. And the, the one moment that especially jumped out to me is Qui-Gon's 400-year-old master. Oh, yes. Yes. And I was like, ah, it's not Count Dooku. He didn't figure that out yet. Yeah. I wonder if he even had Dooku at that point. Right. You know, like, because um, he obviously knew he was going to kill Maul. Uh, yeah. But I don't, yeah, I don't know if he had Dooku figured out there. And it's interesting, it's interesting, too, that to think, okay, you went with 400-year-old Master when you have Yoda right there. Um and yeah, you know, 400, 800 is a big difference numerically, but really in terms of storytelling, is it really that big of a difference? Uh, you could have just had Yoda be his master, but obviously you needed Dooku, you needed the fallen Jedi to attempt, uh, excuse me, Obi-Wan and everything like that. So that, that one did get me and, and, and made me think like, wow, I wonder how that would have worked uh, if we had, you know, a 400-year-old leader of the Separatists. And, and even thinking about, <laughs> you know, if you have a 400-year-old leader, leader of the Separatists and you also have Yoda and then you create this High Republic era, it's like, hmm, that could add a whole different dynamic to what we have now. Like, right. all of these dominoes could have gone in such a different direction. Um, and, and I even think of, you know... Uh, 
the the new books Padawan and Master and Apprentice that we've gotten, and how they really frame uh, Obi Wan and Qui Gon as having this relationship where they didn't really get along for most of their most of Obi Wan's apprenticeship. They there was a disconnect. They didn't feel like they belonged together. Qui Gon never felt like a good enough master. Obi Wan never felt like a good enough Padawan, and they they were just. There was two stars crossing in the night, right? And then they finally yeah. figured it out more or less. And that was very shocking to me uh, reading those two books. But coming back and revisiting this and going, they kind of set that up a lot more in here, even than they did in the movie. Like in the movie, you can tell they clash you know, with each other. But it seems like it's more of a uh, just this circumstance thing where in the book, I feel like you get a better impression of, no, this is what their relationship is. Just overall, yeah. this isn't just an Anakin Jar Jar situational aspect. Yeah, I agree, and I think you saying all that made me think of uh, a moment in the movie that this book really reframed for me, or at least offered a different perspective on. Is towards the end when Qui Gon wants to take on Anakin as his apprentice, and then he says that Obi Wan's ready for the trials, and the book really reframes this moment like where Obi Wan's kind of hurt by this. Yeah. Like, it's this moment of, like, it kind of hurts their relationship because from Obi-Wan's point of view, he's like, oh, Qui-Gon's got this new kid and now he's just looking to dump me. And it kind of leads to this awkwardness that is not really in the movie. You do kind of get that moment on when they get back to Naboo where Obi-Wan is kind of apologizing, but he's really doing that from the context of, like, he's feeling like he hasn't been really behaving well to Qui-Gon and that he's been really arrogant and stuff. But, like, this kind of moment where he feels kind of wronged by Qui-Gon, I think, yeah, that gave me a new perspective on that moment is, like, that being something that kind of, like, causes a little bit of fraying in their relationship in that moment. There's a lot more tension throughout their relationship. Like... You, you have Anakin commenting on how they aren't really talking to each other for a little oh, yeah. while and stuff. Like, um, and, and I think that that adds a little bit more to the end and why Obi-Wan would be so willing to promise to train Anakin. You know, like, not only is he hurting for losing his master, but... Uh, to what extent is he blaming himself? Like he, he already in the book blames himself for not moving faster to get through the ray shields to to be there to to help Qui Gon, um, and they do a, a really good job of emphasizing how Qui Gon is a great duelist, but his age is starting to catch up with him and stuff, which right. I don't think you see as much in the movie. Um, they. I don't know that Liam Neeson really changed the fighting style much from when he started to the end of the, the fight where in the book they do. And they talk about him being drenched in sweat and things of that nature. Um, but if, if Obi-Wan is feeling guilty for having spent the last part of their time together, you know, it, it makes you even more willing to do whatever that person on their deathbed says because you you feel not only an obligation to them, but you feel the guilt that like, you're not going to be able to redo your last time together. And uh, yeah. so, but that's not a, that's not a good place for Obi-Wan and Anakin. Not that they started their relationship in a good place, but this just makes it even more of a, this is not a good place to start a relationship um, with somebody that you're 
responsible for um who you didn't even want coming with you in the first place and now it's just uh, even more of an obligation rather than and than an option and something you really wanted for yourself yeah exactly so anything else that really stood out to you is like whether it was recontextualizing the movie or anything else I mean, I don't know if this is a big one, but I did like towards the end, there's like the little bit of uh, Darth Sidious scene. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't remember. I, it, it maybe it comes, I think it might come in between the funeral and the the celebration or somewhere about there where it's him kind of brooding on what's been happening. And it's very much that kind of like looking forward to like setting up the next installment of the story. But I thought that was a neat little moment. That was cool. I also, I liked for the book, the longer scene with Sidious and Maul, right when uh, when Maul says, at last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi, at last we will have revenge. That's yeah. a longer conversation, which I, I like that both exist. I think the one in the movie does exactly what it needs to in the movie, and I wouldn't have wanted the book scene to be in the movie, but at the same time, in the book, you have the time to expand out on that. And uh, I liked how they uh, expanded on the history of the Sith. And it was cool to see kind of what they've kept and what they haven't. Because I don't know if you were as tuned into the books when when they made this announcement since you've gotten into them more recently. But when the new canon came out, people were like, well, what about the novelizations? And the rule is anything that's in the novelizations that doesn't directly... Con- contradict what is on screen is considered canon so yeah. for example the the tuscan scene is considered canon uh the spacer scene would be considered canon so thinking about i was i was listening pretty closely when they were talking about the the rise of the sith and thinking about okay like has anything changed here and i think it's pretty pretty much the same um as far as things that have actually been canonized i think there one big one that stood out is that darth bane had a male uh, apprentice rather than um he has a female apprentice in the bane trilogy but again those are legends so technically yeah. uh we don't know if or what gender padawan uh darth bane had but it was just interesting that you know even after the, the Phantom Menace novel came out and the Darth Bane novels, I believe it came out after those, um, you know, that they changed that. So, but other than that, like the, the Sith story kind of was broad strokes, but I, I enjoyed having that as a, a part of it and just getting to develop that aspect of Palpatine uh, a little bit more, <laughs> which leads to this dude. I haven't listened to a ton of Star Wars audiobooks. I'm not a huge audiobook person, but this was the worst audiobook narration of any Star Wars book I've listened to thus far. Um, actually, it's the only terrible one. Let me that, That's what I should say. I think there's been some that I, I prefer more than others, but this one was just... It just was bad with all the, the mispronunciations and getting somebody with a very deep voice who you know very baritone who can't get rid of that trying to play nine-year-old kids just 
did not work on any level for me. Um, the the Goongins were yes. just and the Palpatining. It just <laughs> I don't know. How did you feel? You you listen to to audiobooks more regularly than I do. Is this something that happens, or was this just bad? No, I. I yeah, it was kind of rough. I feel like in general the newer canon audiobooks are stronger like in terms mm-hmm. of like the narration of course, you know, then they do a lot more in terms of sound effects and music and all that. And then yeah, if you get into the kind of pre-Disney books and you get some of these earlier, you know, uh, whether it's the novelizations or even some of the the OG Legends audiobooks to the extent that they exist. Yeah, it's a little bit more kind of like all over the place in terms of quality and the narration and all that. So, yeah, I agree. This this is definitely, it's a rough one. They, there was a moment with Watto's wings flapping and it just stood out to me because it was so, like, the, the sound effects were so bad. Um, it sounded like, like, I don't know if you ever had in, like, gym, they had, like, a parachute that you would, like, play games with. And it just, like, it, it, was, it was just a giant parachute. And it just, like, kids flapping it up and down. That's what his wings sounded like. <laughs> it was, like, and then... But then another time, they didn't sound that way. They sounded like almost like somebody was crinkling paper. So there was a lot of inconsistency that just kind of drove me insane there. And I just, that, that's why I'm like, you know, George definitely had a hand in this, but I don't know how huge of a hand he had in this because why, like, Palpatine is said in the movie. So he obviously had yeah. it figured out. Uh, I'm pretty sure Gungans are said in the movie. So you definitely had yeah. it figured out. But what I did notice was, and, and this didn't stand out to me as much reading it, because I think when I read it, I kind of just fixed it in my head. But the way that Jar Jar talks is not as uh, dialectical as we get it in the movies. And I just think it kind of shows the level of involvement that uh, Ahmad Best had in developing the character and the voice of the character and uh even uh some of the mannerisms of the character are very much uh a mod best adding into the performance and that is not a complaint for me to be clear uh i i think he did great work uh with jar jar uh i i definitely think there's some problems with him contextually and there are moments when he works in the movie and moments when he doesn't. But as far as executing a character, I think Ahmad Best did a great job. But did did you kind of notice how they the there wasn't as much, you know, Yusas and Misas in Yeah, the, the, yeah, you're right. Yeah, a, a lot of those kind of inflections or yes, those those kind yes. of choices with the with the Gungans were not there. Which is interesting because, you know, you think about George, you know, not really being a actor's director kind of thing and just like do what's on the page and let's move on. I've got the story. You are just a vessel of the story. Like, let's do this. And but yet he allowed uh, Ahmad Best to play with this character and, and allowed this particular character to be something that developed along the way. And, and you, again, like going back to reference the great documentary, the beginning, you can see in there how 
they were evolving the character as they were making it and figuring out, you know, which parts can we do 100% CGI and which parts do we need to have um, a mod standing in and how much of the suit do we need to have versus how much, you know, can we do this completely CGI and everything like that is the conversations that they're having. So it's just... Like, I think one of the cool things about looking back and reading these novelizations with now even more context, 25 years of context, um, and then last time I read this book was before, you know, Ahmad Best came back into the fandom and was welcomed back with, with the love he deserves. And so getting to think about, like, man, it's pretty cool that, you know, he... He took all this crap, you know, for this character who he obviously cared a lot about because it's clear that he brought a lot of himself into it. Uh, and, and you can see that when you contrast it with the book. So it's cool to see now, you know, maybe it took, you know, 20 years, 25 years for it to happen. And that's beyond unfortunate and absolutely sucks. But at least he's getting that recognition now. And I think that that, you know... It's a l- better late than never thing, but that's something that stood out to me right. as I was reading the book. Yeah, definitely. So, the other th- another thing that stood out to me was the um, the end duel, uh, particularly the Obi Wan Maul uh, part of it, because they were definitely not in the same simple setting that they were in the movie they were in a more industrial area with pipes and smoke and you know there was a moment where i think obi-wan was looking around for like what can be used as weapons beyond the lightsaber here and it had stone floors and so i don't know i i haven't seen any art of uh the phantom menace to like say that that's been you know, got maybe storyboarded and stuff and then got changed because they didn't have enough, you know, in the budget or they just wanted to, you know, reuse pieces to make the set or what happened there. But I really think it could have been cool if you had more of a um, industrial rugged setting in the end there rather than uh, the clean aspect of Naboo. I think it would have just been a cool visual to show like, things are getting darker and things are starting to break apart. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And yeah, it would be interesting to find out, you know, where, like, where is that difference coming from? Like whether it is something that was conceived different than when they did the execution, you know, it, they made it the way they did. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that that is an interesting difference. I mean, it's a, it's it's a weird space because it's like you know you're in the you're in the royal palace and then you just you know you go off to the left and you're in some kind of weird refinery factory thing. It's yeah. always like e- even in the way that it's in the movie, you're like, what? Like, what is this place? Like, what are these doors doing? Like, why are there laser doors? Why is there a giant hole? Yeah, it just doesn't. It's like, did they build the? the castle or the palace rather around an industrial center and they just wanted to cover it up. And so like that's in the middle of it and all the palace is just like around the outside or something like it. It is weird. And so um, I thought maybe it would fit a little, I, I guess it would have, it would have fit more, but it also would have fit less because you still would have had the, the 
castle. I keep I keep wanting to say temple, which is what's throwing me off, but not the temple. This is not the Jedi temple. You have the palace right there. Uh, so what the hell George was thinking when he was writing the script, I have no idea. I think he just... I think a lot of times with these, he just thinks like, what would be cool? You know, you've got like the, the lava around uh, Emperor Palpatine's throne in Return of the Jedi. That was a concept. And it's like, yeah. how are we really going to execute this in a way that makes some semblance of logical sense for the movie? And I mean, I guess they figured it out because for 25 years, we've been accepting that the, you know, there's just this, like you said, this industrial center around um, where the palace is at. It's it's really, it's really weird. It is. Do you feel like that this book took away from any characters, um, or was a detriment to them in comparison to the character we got in the film? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, we've already talked about Anakin and how like. Really, with him, it just kind of it underscores what you already get in the movie. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Because Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, I, I, I feel like it adds to their relationship. Yeah. Even if it doesn't add to their individual characters. Right. Yes. There's yeah, one in particular yeah. I'm thinking of, but I want to see if you get there. Hmm. I'm trying to... Who are you thinking of? I'm thinking Padme. Yeah, my brain kind of went to Padme mm-hmm. because, yeah, she doesn't seem quite as as prominent. Not as prominent. She That's doesn't come off as as capable, and she yeah, do, she seems too too into Anakin. Uh, whereas yeah. in the movie, they Natalie Portman plays it as a more of a like you're an awkward kid and you're cute and i'm going to right allow for that but in this she's kind of like and maybe maybe it was the narration more than the prose itself but it felt like she was kind of like i'm kind of into this kid and it was not yeah not great yeah like i think after she admits, uh, you know, who she is and everything, um, and she's apologizing to Anakin for deceiving him, and she's like, she says something like, I hope this doesn't make you like me any less or anything like that. Right, yeah, yeah, she does have that moment of like, yeah, I hope this doesn't change anything or whatever. Uh, or he's like, you're still the same person to me or whatever, like, yeah. Yeah, so that... That was a little... It was interesting to hear Anakin think about that and think about how, um, you know, he's a slave kid and she's a queen and, like, how does this work? But then you get that Anakin boldness of, like, doesn't matter how it works. I'm going to make it work. Right. So, um, yeah, that that just really stood out to me as, like, I personally, like, I like... Padme in in the Phantom Menace. I know some people have their problems with her. Um, I personally think she comes off as strong and capable and competent. Um, Agreed. So to to get to get less than that in the book was a little bit um, unsettling. The only other thing I think it took away from is the idea that Qui Gon knew who um, who Padme really was. And I don't think it's necessarily in anything that it said, but it's more in the fact that it didn't say it. 
uh, I appreciate in the new canon, um, they they have more or less said, like, yeah, Qui-Gon knew. Like, in the Queen's books, Padme knows that Qui-Gon knew um, what was up the whole time. And I kind of wish that they would have laid, this at, laid it out there um, a little bit more uh, in the novelization. I think that that could have been cool, and I, I think it would have been interesting to see how that could have changed our conversations over the last 25 years of like, did Qui-Gon know? Did he not? Because it's, it's only been, like I said, since the queen books, when it was said just straight up, yes, he knew. Right. Yeah. I think there's like, there's little things and particularly this is, you know, the difference between a story told on, you know, on paper versus a story told on screen where I think there are little moments where even I think, on screen watching it at the time i think you can like pick up little moments like i'm thinking particularly about you know the the exchange about like the queen doesn't need to know Mm -hmm. uh, you know that or like the queen trusts my judgment you should too there's like there's like little moments where he kind of like rubbing it in her face a little bit that like oh like i know who you are and like I'm going to act as if you're not the queen, but I'm going to like make you take it. You know, there's like those little moments where I think you like, you look back and maybe, maybe it helps to like have that con- canon confirmation where like you look back and, like, and you can kind of think like, Oh, he, I think he's kind of like teasing or like messing with her a little bit. Cause Absolutely. He knows. Absolutely. And <laughs> you brought up that thing of, of, you know, him clapping back at her. And one of those scenes happens when he says, uh, there'll be no more orders from the, queens to the, from the queen today, right? When Panaka brings her out and is saying yeah. that the queen wants her to go. I love Panaka in that scene in the book where he just goes, don't make me go back in there and tell her <laughs> that you're not going <laughs> to take her. I'm just like, why is it the most Panaka thing ever? Like, bro, cut me some slack. I'm trying here. Yes. Oh, it was so yes. good. I love that. So any kind of final thoughts on the book? Because like you kind of said at the beginning, a lot of it is a uh, just a retelling of what we got. I think we've covered most of the, the major things that changed. Um, other than uh, Maul screaming in pain when he gets sliced <laughs> in half, that would have been an interesting... If we had Maul going, no, as he falls down the pit. Um, yes, yeah, like, like like Luke used to in Empire, and then he, they cut that. Yes, yes. It, we could have had a perfect Star Wars tradition, but they isolated it to just Anakin, so I guess we'll have to be okay with that. But, yeah, any final thoughts on, on the book overall? Yeah, I think in terms of final thoughts, you know, we've talked about in, you know, in this conversation, I think a lot of the the big contributions that you get out of the Phantom Menace in terms of like these, particularly these added scenes with Anakin and getting to underscore, you know, what he's like before he gets older and he starts getting sort of corrupted by the dark side. And I think that's when I think about the book overall, I think those are its, its big contributions. But in terms of like, for example, like comparing it among the other like prequel trilogy novelizations, like I think of the three, it is the weakest overall in terms of like, it doesn't have the kind of soaring prose that you get out of Revenge of the Sith. But I think neither does it get you the kind of really even like deeper 
you know, character study and really like giving you things that aren't on the screen the way that, let's say, the Attack of the Clones novelization does in terms of like really getting to spend a lot of time with Padme and seeing what's going on in her head and how she's processing like her relationship and her feelings with Anakin. Like as we talked about with the Anakin scenes, like they, you know, they add things, but like they're, they're reinforcing things that are already on the screen. So yeah, I would say that's kind of my overall thoughts on the novelization. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. I think Revenge of the Sith is the best. I, I think it's the best Star Wars novelization at the very least, um, but it's definitely yeah. the best of the prequels. And then you have Attack of the Clones. Um, with Attack of the Clones, you also have a lot more with me, which I think is really cool yes. because we kind of get a little bit of her here and then all of a sudden she's dead in Attack of the Clones. And so it's kind of cool to have that bridge there. And then, yeah, this one. And and saying it's the weakest is not saying that it's bad at all. It just, it, it doesn't. Right. I think that they were playing it a lot safer with this one um, because George had the outline. He had the major beats, but not necessarily how everything was going to get there. And it was a different beast with the original trilogy because when you were writing Star Wars, you didn't even know if anything else was going to happen um and then you know empire you were still developing things uh and return of the jedi you thought it was the end so you you're you're taking a little bit of a different approach and you had nothing before that trilogy and nothing after that trilogy whereas with the prequel trilogy you're of course leading into the originals and so uh i think with phantom menace there was a little bit more of a playing it safe idea than you had in uh in the later books, you know, with Attack of the Clones, you kind of, you know what the emotional climax is of the the trilogy now, especially uh, with the loss of his mother, with Anakin losing his mother. And so you can lean into that a little bit more than you can s- set stuff up that you're not even sure of yet um, with this book. It, because it's clear they did know things and it's clear they did set it up. So the things that they didn't set up, that there's a reason for it. And I don't think it's because they didn't want to. I think it's because they didn't know. And and that's fine. Like, these are creative endeavors that change as time goes on. And I'd rather them play it safe and give us a solid novel than one where we spend the rest of, of our fandom going, man, but if they had followed this thread, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't want that right. in, in our novels. So, um, right. yeah, absolutely. Uh I would, I would agree with everything you had to say there. So let's go ahead and give it our final ratings. And uh, I'm, I'm sticking at a three out of five on this one. I, I think I'm a much more comfortable three out of five than I was before. I'm, I'm kind of maybe on a reread of the book uh, again could be tipped to a 3.5 out of five. But I feel pretty comfortable at a three out of five right now. I think I'm also comfortable staying at a three. I there there was a moment in the course of the conversation where I thought about maybe going up to that three and a half, but I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that three. Okay, yeah. So just because we're probably not going to be able to to um, talk through all of the novelizations, uh, uh, because of course we're not at the 25th anniversary of all of these amazing movies. But just for context, what would you give Attack of the Clones and what would you give Revenge of the Sith? So Attack of the Clones, I would do a four. Agreed. Because uh, I think, I, yeah, I think, it's re- I think it's really, really strong. And I think it does, it does a lot, particularly in terms of giving us a much more fleshed out 
love story between Anakin and Padme. Like you get some of those deleted scenes uh, around Padme that didn't end up in the movie, but then you go even beyond that and really getting to spend a lot of time with her, which is I think the big thing that's particularly missing from the movie is like Mm -hmm. you understand Anakin's point of view and like what he wants and what he's getting out of this relationship and you less understand what Padme's investment in this. But I think in the book, you really do understand what, what her investment in this relationship is. And then your Revenge of the Sith, I mean, I think you, you got to go the five out of five. Obviously. Like, anybody who rates it less than five out of five, I just question, I question a lot about you. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, it is, it's well written, it adds to the movie, it doesn't detract in any way. Like, there's... It's so freaking good. And yeah, I would agree the four out of five on Attack of the Clones as well. Like I said, it's, I think it is the most underrated novelization um, out of any of them. And I think you've, you've got to even consider Solo and Rise of Skywalker and stuff in that category. But I think uh, Attack of the Clones is the one that people sleep on when it comes to, to Star Wars novelization. So maybe when it's the, the next podcast day and, and we get to a couple years from now and it's the 25th anniversary of Attack of the Clones, we'll have to do this do this again. Yeah, definitely. So uh, if people uh, want to find you other places other than on the main show, um, tell them a little bit about what Space Swifties is about and where they can find you on the socials. All right, if you want to find me on the socials, you can find me on X at a larger view pod. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I co-host a podcast called Space Swifties, a Star Wars and Taylor Swift podcast, which is all about the the thematic and story intersections between the stories of Star Wars and the music of Taylor Swift. And it's just a good old time. So make sure you go and subscribe there. Uh, if you want more of us, of course, you can subscribe to the network and get all of our shows. We've mentioned the main show, Clashing Sabers, that Devor and I are both on. You, of course, get Lindsay and I uh, normally on Don't Burn the Sacred Text. Uh, you've got Forever Star Wars that Mark puts together, Sith Talk with Zach, Lindsay, and I am on there also for the time being. Uh, so we're, we just got a whole bunch of stuff coming out. We're talking movies. We're talking books. We're talking TV. We're talking all things Star Wars. So subscribe and you get all of those in one place. And while you're at it, you're already there subscribing. Go ahead and leave us a rating and review so we can kind of spread what we've got going on here because we are, of course, more than a podcast network. We are also a nonprofit that puts Star Wars books into classrooms across the country. So uh, if you would like to support that mission and get some bonus content, you can go over to our Patreon and 100% of what you donate goes directly to buying and shipping books to teachers. And like I mentioned um, on our previous episode uh, uh, where on Clashing Sabers where we talked about the Phantom Menace, we don't do things small here. So when I say we're sending a box of books, this is not a shoebox of books. I'm talking I sent $250, probably 60 to 70 Star Wars books to a teacher um, this past week. Like, this is 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 stuff that is going to change a classroom and change a culture um, in that classroom and really bring life to to these kids as readers. And so we're only able to do that because you guys are are supporting that mission. So we appreciate 
all of you who do that and all of you who are going to go do that. So uh, if you want to find us on the socials, other than that, of course, we are at Clashing Sabers on on everything. And we have our amazing Facebook group, Star Wars Clashing Sabers. So you can come hang out with us there. And of course, we drop all the episodes there as well. So until then, until Lindsay and I return to talk some more High Republic, until Devorah and I get back onto the Clashing Sabers main podcast and talk all things Star Wars, make sure you who are listening, keep reading, keep writing, but whatever you do, don't burn the sacred text. All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers Network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?